Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston, and this is a show that takes a deeper look into the stories of the week and a wider view of the world of business and politics here in Ireland and around the world. Coming up on today's show, we'll be looking at our eating and travel habits post-pandemic because it seems like we've gone back to both with great gusto. Firstly, Ryanair have given further evidence of a strong recovery from the pandemic. Europe's biggest low-cost airline this week reported a pre-tax profit of almost $1.4 billion for the first month few months of the year. That's a whopping 20% increase on their pre-pandemic profits. How did it recover so quickly and what are its plans for the future? We'll chat to Sean Keyes of The Currency about the secret of Ryanair's success. Back on the ground, how we eat and when we eat has changed. I'll be joined by Board Bia to learn about our new post-pandemic dining habits. And finally, former President Donald Trump is expected to declare his future plans this week. He'll do so under investigation for everything from his handling of top secret documentation to the price tag placed around his New York penthouse. Joe Miller from the Financial Times in New York talks us through the big legal battles ahead for Mr. Trump and his empire. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, a report recently released by Board Bia shows that eating out may be back to pre-pandemic levels with eating out sector in general seemingly buoyant and people want to experience that restaurant lifestyle again. I'm joined now by Maureen Gahan, who is food service specialist with Board Bia. Maureen, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you. Now, just to start us off, Maureen, who did you survey? What was the research designed to do? Yes, Mandy. So it's a piece of research. Actually, we have been conducting for the last 10 years now. And first and foremost, we talk to the trade. So we go out and we speak to trade associations like the restaurants, hotels, publicans. But we also speak to uh, the distributors. So key to getting food from a supplier to a restaurant or a hotel are the guys with the vans. So we talk to the likes of Musgrave Wholesale, Cisco, BWG Food Service, etc. So all of the national distributors. And then we talk to people within the industry, generally the bigger players, so some of the chain hotels, coffee shops, but also it's not just the high street, so it also includes the likes of um, contract caterers, so the people who provide catering uh, in offices or the likes of the Aviva Stadium or Guinness Storehouse. So we speak to those guys as well. So uh, over 25 face-to-face interviews. And then as part of that, all of that is about looking to size the markets. How much is it worth? And also how much has it grown year on year? What are we predicting into 2023? What are the key trends and drivers? And then this year, uh, we also did a consumer piece. So with a a separate research agency, Opinions, we piggybacked on one of their omnibus uh, surveys. And we went out for two weeks in September and uh, got feedback from 1,300 consumers in Northern Ireland and the Republic. And we wanted to understand now that the market had reopened and, um, you know, what were their attitudes towards eating out? Were they starting to notice uh, kind of a, a pinch on their wallets? If so, how was that affecting their behaviour, etc.? So. Right, so very comprehensive. You've got the industry, the food service, the sector, you've got consumers, you've got north and south, so you yeah. should have a good picture in this. So what are the trends that you're seeing? And most importantly, what are the big changes that you've identified from before the pandemic to now? Yes, it's interesting. On the changes, we were keen to see um, 
what what was happening year on year because obviously the pandemic had a huge impact on out of home because we were all told to stay at home. So um, we had, and you know, it was almost like a cliff edge overnight back in March 2020 uh, where things literally shut down, not just in Ireland, but around the world. So we have been tracking since then and we'd actually been publishing mid-year white papers because the client companies who we work with, the Irish food and drink manufacturers, wanted to know how bad is this going to be? We need to replan, etc. Uh, so we were looking to see, now that industry, uh, and the, the uh, market had opened up from February this year, and I suppose if you cast your mind back, it did actually open up quicker than anyone expected and more comprehensively than anyone expected. We wanted to see was any of the trends behaviours that have been in place throughout COVID, did any of them stick? The reality is that we're creatures of habit and most of us went back, just wanted to go back to the way things were. So we had thought things maybe like the plexiglass or some of the kind of QR codes for ordering from menus, less of the human contact piece, they might stay on all of that gone. Uh, really the one permanent feature and it was interesting just even walking up today I was noticing it on the uh, sidewalks of Dublin is that the whole outdoor piece people invested in outdoor and now what you find is even regardless if it's winter consumers like to uh, a lot of them like to, try to to sit outside and if you're a pub or a restaurant it means now you've expanded the space that you have so that's been a positive uh, and we've seen that not just uh, in Ireland but overseas as well Yeah I was thinking back to when Michael McDool was trying to introduce the new changes to the licensing laws to introduce a cafe culture and mm. it seemed impossible but you're right when you walk through any town any village or the city here you can definitely see that the landscape itself has changed people are definitely changing their habits I just want to go into to a bit more of the consumer side of things um, mm. and how we like to eat and when we like to eat. Um, for example, I've, I've read some places that 6pm is the new 8pm and Thursday is the new Friday. Yeah. So what did you find about our house? Yes, yeah, some changes uh, on that uh, in terms of timing and when we want to go eat, to go out and eat. Um, everything has been brought forward a bit and interestingly for uh, the event that we held last week in Kilishi House we actually had some of our overseas colleagues do some uh, pre-record video as to the trends that they were seeing and New York were saying very much all of the eating times have become earlier because what you find particularly where people are working from home mm. like ourselves they have this hybrid it's on average three days in the office two days at home the days that people are working from home they want to actually get out earlier so instead of waiting until they're kind of finished work and then hanging around until 8 o'clock they're now saying we'll meet you in the city centre but we meet you at 6 and we have found that here as well um, it's slightly earlier more breakfast people looking for breakfast out of home because when we were at home you know there was no need to go out and buy a breakfast now everyone on the move even if they're not going into the office five days a week more than likely they are out of out of the house moving and so breakfast is back on the menu Thursdays being the new Fridays we talk about that because again it, it reflects the hybrid work uh, situation and so in city centres a lot of people going out on the Thursdays that's not to say there's nothing happening on the Fridays what you'll find actually is sub in suburbs um still busy on a Friday and actually suburbs certainly uh, won throughout COVID and continue for the days that people are working from home they're perhaps likely to go down to for a coffee or a bite of lunch or to eat out so um, it, it's that mix between city centres suburbs mm. and uh, regions as well I was wondering the timing thing maybe it has something to do with the fact that most of us live outside the city centre we are on relatively long commutes whether it's train or car and so you're not going to go home change, come back in. I actually heard them talking in the office here that they literally go out after work and so that might yeah. have something to do with it as well as the post-COVID uh, 
habits. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, uh, you know, there's very few people that are fortunate enough to live within a short commute to Dublin city centre. So more often than not, whether you're driving or whether you're on public transport, uh, it's kind of standard people spending an hour, if not more. And yes, for sure, they don't want to come home and head all the way back in again. So that's that's good news that people are returning. But obviously, mm. like most sectors, there there's a lot of concerns about the future, given everything that's going on in the world, inflation, cost of energy uh, crisis. Can you just yeah. give us some of the um, other issues that are facing the food service providers that you've identified in this report? Yeah. So as you mentioned, there are everyone is facing increased costs throughout the board and it's uh, not just the yeah inflation in terms of increase in food food costs, but of course energy costs are huge, and there you know that affects both the people who are making the food, the people who are distributing it, and then the restaurants themselves. Um, Staffing is a huge challenge for the industry. We've been talking about the lack of uh, staff within the industry for way before COVID. Now, since COVID, it's even more acute because, as we know, a lot of people left hospitality. Um, Unfortunately, it was quite an unstable sector over two years, opening up, closing, etc. So people have left and maybe they're not coming back, you know, um, again depending if you're talking about that going to high street pubs, restaurants, it's relatively antisocial because you've got to work weekends. So there's challenges there from a labour point of view, for sure. So what we're, what we're predicting as well is that we know uh, consumers are going to start to feel the pinch as well. Obviously, as consumers, we're dealing with rising energy bills. You could argue that uh, we've had a relatively mild winter to date, so people are not perhaps even seeing the full force of those um, fuel bills. Uh, and we know, so there's there's increases still on the way, but ultimately out, eating out of home is very much linked to consumer confidence and disposable income. Mm. And it is one thing that suffers when confidence starts to drop and when people have less money, they'll start to you know, it's almost like a, a pendulum between what they're spending in the supermarket versus what they're spending out of home. So as things start to tighten, they may cut down on out of home, spend more on the supermarket and stay in. I mean, the good news is for people within the food industry, everyone has to eat. But it's that they talk about that kind of share of the stomach. So mm. who's going to win out? Um, so it, it, without a doubt, there will be some challenges ahead. But interestingly, what we're, what we're seeing and actually, you know, we had one of the speakers at our event from the US and in one sense, you know, they opened up earlier than us. They have already dipped into a recession back out again, but, you know, probably in a, a more difficult, um, wider macroeconomic environment. They're saying that unlike previous recessions where people just pull back altogether, they are still going out to eat, but they're not going out as frequently. But when they're going out, they're still spending money and they want that customer experience. And again, like hospitality is one of those industries that can provide that you know, little bit of mm. escapism. And, and, ma- and maybe it is that post-pandemic, we don't want to lose that element exactly. of our lifestyle. Exactly. Now, Maureen, you mentioned just a few moments ago about the labour issues. Mm-hmm. And we've seen restaurants, cafes, all having to even close down on particular days during the week just because they can't get yeah. um, the appropriate staff. But, I mean, we can't just keep saying this, that, you know, we can't get the staff. What are the practical things that food sector businesses are doing to actually Mm. recruit and retain staff? 
Well, some of the trade associations we spoke to, they're actively engaging with the likes of Falcher Ireland to so run recruitment drives. Much more collaboration. Exactly, yeah. and encouraging um, people, a cohort of people into the industry. You know, although I mentioned earlier that it could be seen as antisocial, for some of it actually it works because it's very flexible, the hours may suit. Um, they're also working with the third level institutes. The And retaining, obviously, like all uh, sectors, but I suppose they're acutely aware that it does cause if you lose somebody there's a big cost on that so they're open to negotiate and say well how can we maybe uh, provide them with uh, more social hours or how if you know it seems like nearly everybody is whatever about minimum wage they're already paying over and above that and depending on you know what what um, position you hold within the business they'll you know the that conversation about money is certainly being had interestingly yes we did hear that places were where they literally left money on the table over the busy summer months where they were like, we know if we could stay open later, we could do more business, but we just can't because of staffing shortages. At the same time, other businesses have reviewed and said, "Okay, well, it doesn't necessarily make sense for us to be open now on a Monday, Tuesday, because the cost of our heating and lighting and energy, everything else is just doesn't make business sense. sense. So some places are saying, "Okay, well, you know, if we're pubs, well, maybe we, let's close a bit earlier. So it's, I suppose it's not as as um, rigid as it was pre-COVID, which is not necessarily a bad thing. People can make decisions on, on how it works best for them. Well, on a separate issue, I was also reading about menu tension in the report. What does that mm. mean? Well, again, we when we were talking to people during COVID times and also we talk about supply chain and we know since the Brexit referendum in 2016, that whole Ireland-UK, there's been tensions with supply chain accessing. And then we heard, you know, for a long time, there was this container that was stuck in the canal that was causing delays to everything. But joking aside, there, you know, it's ongoing challenges with supply chain. I think much of it really as the world just opened up after being shut down for a couple of years and everything, everybody wanted everything fast. And we know that China is still closing down, opening up. So there's there's all these like pressures within the supply chain. And um, it did cause everyone within the industry to say, okay, we need to take stock and we need to rationalise our menus and maybe just cut back and focus on core items. And also, I suppose, from a consumer point of view, this idea of like maybe back to basics and let's just focus on what, you know, um, what we know will sell. Or, However, um, it's interesting because while the industry are telling us that on one hand, they're mm. saying on the other hand, actually, nobody's coming to us with innovation or new products or solutions or ideas. And we know that we have to maintain that excitement for customers to continue to encourage them out. So they're saying uh, we would love for the industry to talk to us more about like these are the trends we're noticing. This is what we have that'll allow you to provide that bit of excitement on your menu, whether it's a beverage or food item. So that's the the tension we talk about between cutting back on one hand to kind of control, to deal with supply challenges and just back to basics. But at the same time, looking for something a little bit different to what their competitors may have. And in your consumer, the consumer part of your research, did you look at any of the shopping trends or what people are looking for from that side of the food sector? No, it was very much specific to out of home. Okay. Was their question. And we do include, when we talk about food service, we actually reference um, pro- food that's prepared out of home as well. So it includes everything like that's delivered to the home. And we were tracking during COVID, you know, the propensity of people to order takeaways who mightn't have previous, where they're using the likes of the third party Just Eat Deliveroo's and so on. Where are they looking for, you know, you'd recall at one stage menus were doing the, you know, cook your own restaurant meal mm. at home. So we were trying to track those. And again, a lot of that has dropped for sure since dining in has returned. But ultimately, 
what happened during COVID was that it accelerated. It brought a lot of people into that market who would never have done home delivery before. So although we're seeing a drop, it's still probably about 10% above where it was pre-pandemic. And finally, and very briefly, Maureen, I just wanted to ask you, we see a lot of um, cafes and restaurants, sadly, very sadly, closing down at the moment. Just read some comments this week from some cafe owners around the tech area where there's a lot mm-hmm. of these uh, job losses, unfortunately. Now, do you think that um, the this sector, this mm. food service sector, could could be the canary in the coal mine prediction of what's to come. It'll be interesting to see and nobody, we talk about, you know, that an elusive crystal ball would be mm. great if we had it. Um, I think what you will find as we go into 2023, we're forecasting a, a strong Christmas. It is the first uh, real Christmas in three years where people are out and about. And we know from speaking to the industry as part of this research back in October, Christmas bookings were already in. The big challenge will come in the first quarter of next year. Um, and obviously, in some industry saying, you know, even though people are out again, it's actually even more challenging than during the pandemic. And of course, those government supports to have been pulled, notwithstanding the fact that there will be the, the energy support. So we feel that there will be some casualties, unfortunately, more than likely the independents who don't have the support of bigger chains. Um, and it'll probably polarise as well. We talk about everyday food service. So if you think about it, if I'm on the go three or four days a week, might be picking up a coffee or something in a spa or a apple green or whatever. That's all kind of everyday and not huge spend. Yeah. And then at the other end, of you've got the you know premium fine dining experience. There's probably still enough money in that space, but more than likely the middle will get squeezed and unfortunately there will be, well, we forecast into 2023 growth, but that'll be fueled by inflation. We're not actually anticipating any volume or consumer traffic growth next year. Yeah, and of course, as you say, the early part of next year, very difficult when inflation, interest rates will rise again and the right. energy uh, prices will kick in. But um, Maureen, thanks for coming in to us today. Thank that you, was a very interesting piece of research, uh, but for now we'll have to leave it there. That was Maureen Gahan of Onboard Bia. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, the Republican Party didn't get it all their own way in the midterm elections. As we steal ourselves for an announcement by Donald Trump, we'll turn stateside to hear all about the legal cases facing the former president. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. Now, last week didn't exactly deliver the tidal wave of support for the Republican Party that they had expected. Donald Trump has said he's going to make a big announcement this week about his future intentions. So while we all steal ourselves for that announcement, we wanted to take a look at the four high profile investigations that could have a big impact on Mr. Trump both professionally and politically. So I'm joined now from New York by Joe Miller of the Financial Times. Joe, you're welcome back to Taking Stock. Thank you very much for having me again. Now, those four big investigations are the documents at Mar-a-Lago, the Trump Organization in New York, the Capitol Hill riots and the attempts by Donald Trump, it says, to overturn the presidential race in 2020. So can we start with the first one, the documents at Mar-a-Lago? What exactly is that investigation about? What is he being accused of and how serious is it for him? Well, It remains to be seen because that's still uh, an investigation, so it hasn't actually hit a courtroom, so to speak, yet. But the allegations are incredibly serious. Um, They are that Donald Trump, as he was leaving office, essentially took a load of classified materials with him to his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. Um, He kept them there um, in essentially an unsecured setting the FBI and um, various other officials raided Mar-a-Lago in August, picked up 
um, these classified documents, found them to be in his possession, um, and are still conducting various searches to make sure that they have all of the documents that he allegedly took with him uh, as he left um, office. And these are sort of top secret uh, documents. Uh, And what they're now trying to ascertain is whether any permission was granted for some of these documents, what level of security uh, clearance um, Trump and his family had, etc. So that's going to take a while to come through the system, but it's potentially very, very serious for Donald Trump because, um, as you might imagine, the laws on where these kind of documents can be read and whether they can be transported are very, very strong. Mm. His defense is very interesting. He's claiming that he just declassified everything, sort of like Pope infallibility, if you like. Will that hold up as a defense? Again, it's one of those (laughs) interesting Donald Trump uh, legal strategies. It's often quite difficult to tell whether he's made these up on the fly or whether he's actually received legal advice to pursue this kind of strategy. Um, It's usually the former, especially um, if reports are to be believed about um, what his actual lawyers have been telling him to do and their advice being routinely ignored. Um, It certainly is a novel defense. Um, Whether it'll stick, I suppose, will um, really depend on whether there is a paper trail of um, any um, attempt to do something like that, which uh, at the moment it doesn't seem like there is. Um, And there's a lot of sort of legal scholars at the moment going back and forth on whether that is even something that a president can do. Um, But yet again, I mean, this is nowhere near a courtroom yet. So it's all essentially being litigated over the airwaves at the moment. Mm. Now, the investigation of the Trump Organization in New York is something you've been writing extensively about recently. There are two investigations in New York, one civil, the other criminal. Um, can you just talk us through uh, the the charges that are laid against him? And it's not just him, is it? It's the wider members of his family. Indeed. This is probably where the Trump organization and Donald Trump himself is in the most jeopardy, at least in the most immediate jeopardy. And the irony of it is that the issues involved, um, firstly, mostly predate his presidency, um, and um, aren't in the grand scheme of things uh, the most exciting um or I should say ambitious frauds that the Trump organization has allegedly been involved in. It's essentially um, a litany of allegations about um, fake or false accounting um, of giving uh, executives perks off the books, so to speak. So, um, you know, giving certain members of the Trump organization, Mercedes Benz cars, paying for their children's tuition, paying for their rent, etc., which is essentially another form of paying your staff without having to pay tax on their salary. Um, and as you say, there are two cases here, um, both of uh, with, with sort of interesting um, reasons for their importance. The criminal case is the only criminal case of all of the um, litigation surrounding the Trump empire. This is the only criminal case uh, that's anywhere near Donald Trump. It's a case against the Trump organization, we should say. So it's not a criminal case against Trump himself or any of his family members. And the potential uh, remedies are very small. We're talking a few million um, dollars here and there. But nonetheless, getting a criminal conviction against the um, Trump organization would be very wounding 
um, to the company, not least because um, large financial institutions, etc., would probably not want to go near it anymore. It would make it a lot more difficult for the Trump organization to raise money. Government entities couldn't do business or wouldn't want to do business with the Trump organization and would want to distance themselves from it. Um, and so the outcome, you know, could really have a, a quite a severe impact on, on Trump's orbit. And you can see that by the effort that he and his legal team are putting into fighting that. And then separately, as you mentioned, there's this um, civil case brought by the Attorney General of New York, uh, Letitia James, just in September. And again, this uh, regards a sort of 10, 11 year period um, in which um, the Attorney General's office claims that the Trump organization falsified a litany of different um uh, accounts uh, overstated the value of Trump's properties and his golf courses, etc. Uh, and the list of allegations goes on for pages and pages and pages. Uh, now, this is a civil action, but it's actually against both the Trump Organization and Donald Trump and his children. And the potential um, fine is very high it's sort of 250 million or so. Um, and, you know, that could really financially harm Donald Trump. Yeah, and some really scathing commentary on the operations by uh, lawyers for Letitia James um, there. And, and ironic in that all of his political uh, misdemeanors, it may actually be the business operations that, you know, kind of do for him in the end. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Joe Miller from the Financial Times in New York. And we're going through the legal travails of Donald Trump. Now, Joe, the Capitol Hill riots uh, and in particular Mr. Trump's alleged role in that attack on the U.S. Capitol on the 6th of January in 2021 when a mob of supporters stormed the building. Um, the This is interesting because last week's midterm elections could have a bearing on what happens in terms of the investigations into this. But what exactly is Trump being accused of here? Uh, indeed, um, this is a investigation that's essentially happening by the Department of Justice, but there is also, as you mentioned, an ongoing committee probe um, on Capitol Hill, which is looking into the events of January 6th. And the two kind of overlap, because while a committee essentially just takes evidence and hearings, what is said in a committee can be used uh, in evidence you know, by prosecutors. So they watch very, very closely what people tell lawmakers, um, you know, when they give evidence, when they give testimony to these committees, um, and they watch the documents that are provided in as, as evidence, and that can help build a case against individuals. And indeed, it has so far, you know, various members of Trump's orbit have been um, in legal trouble because of uh, what happened on January 6th. But when it comes to Trump himself, essentially what the investigation is trying to establish is whether Trump has any role or any direct role in inciting the mob that went um, that uh, raided the Capitol on January 6th, um, whether the things that he was saying to them, uh, either um, in that rally that happened a couple of hours earlier or through his tweets um, or through media outlets that he was feeding information to actually had a direct uh, uh, impact on the events of the day in which, as we know, um, an officer died and um, many, many people were injured, um, not to mention you know, many of the other crimes that 
uh, took place that day. Um, and so that would be key to this, which is to establish, you know, blame and uh, establish whether Donald Trump had a direct role. It might be quite difficult to do that. And as you say, the results of the midterms um, may um, put sort of sand in the gears of this process, because if the Republicans take over the House, they may even take over the Senate, we're waiting to hear. Um, then, of course, the congressional investigations are in the hands of the Republicans, and they may or almost certainly will bring these investigations to a halt. They can't stop the Department of Justice's investigation, but they can stop these committees from subpoenaing people, etc., and what's more, they will probably launch investigations into the government itself, trying to reverse the process that has been going on so far. So trying to claim that procedure hasn't been followed, etc., etc., and put a lot of pressure on um, the officials that are investigating Trump in this matter. So that really, in the next couple of weeks, it'll become clear, I think, or clearer, I should say, how far uh, this investigation can go. Let's watch that one. And finally, in relation to the investigations and prosecutors are looking at uh, alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election result. Um, the criminal investigation was opened after disclosure of phone calls. Can you just talk us through what this one is about? Yeah, so this is uh, essentially, um, you remember that uh, soon after the uh, 2020 uh, election results came in, there were reports that Donald Trump was calling around um, various states and trying to get state officials to overturn the results of the election. That is all allegations. At the moment. Those are all allegations at the moment, uh, we should say. Um, but it was widely reported at the time. Uh, and Georgia, perhaps, was the most egregious example uh, in which he had uh, allegedly got on the phone and and told officials in Georgia, a particular official in Georgia, um, that he he wanted them to essentially overturn um, the results of the election. Uh, and therefore, there is an investigation um, by the district attorney in Georgia. Um, it's at a very early stage again. Um, indictments could be coming in December. Um, there have been some recent reports to, to that effect. Um once again, actually, you know, that very much depends on the political will in Georgia of how far to take this this process. And although that's somewhat divorced from the political situation in, in Washington. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we have to wait for the indictments to see whether it's you know, actually brought for a start and whether it's brought against um, Trump himself and what evidence um, the district attorney has, you know, are there phone call logs, are there recordings, etc. Um, and if there are, that could be pretty damning uh, for Trump. Now, finally, Joe, I said at the outset that we're all expecting a big announcement this week from Donald Trump. Do you think that the results from the midterm elections will make it more likely that he'll uh, announce himself as a candidate from for the Republican Party in 2024. I see in New York, where you are, the trends are slightly booked, though uh, the Republicans do a little bit better there. Yeah, indeed. Although the Republicans that have done better, um, and I'm not a political reporter, not a specialist on this, but um, you know, just lo looking at what's been happening, um, seem to be Republicans who uh, are not the most loyal Trumpists, where... Uh, whereas those who um, did, you know, see themselves very much as as um, 
you know, Trump's successes have more, by and large not fared so well across the country. Um, but by all accounts, uh, he's seething about the results. Um, and um, if uh, if passes <laughs> any prologue, then um, when Donald Trump is seething, he tends to uh, double down and. Um, Perhaps that would be uh, the spur for his um, announcement of his candidacy, uh, but remains to be seen. I mean, I think that the Republican Party itself has a few days to decide uh, whether this is the time to sever ties with him once and for all uh, and leave him to wallow in his in his legal troubles in, uh, in Mar-a-Lago. Well, we'll all watch this space with interest. But Joe, for now, thank you so much for giving us your insights into those legal battles. For now, we leave it there. That's Joe Miller from the Financial Times in New York. Joe, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, Ryanair came back stronger than ever with record earnings. And with more expansion plans on the horizon, we'll find out how they do it after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Ryanair, Europe's largest airline by passenger numbers, earned almost £1.4 billion pre-tax profits in the first six months to the end of September. They're simply a remarkable story. They've made an amazing contribution to Ireland's economy. They've changed the face of aviation across Europe and they're predicting more growth in the years ahead. But they're not without their critics. For some it's about customer service, others it's, it's environmentalism and others don't really like the cult of their CEO. To discuss their success, their comeback and their contribution to the Irish economy, we're joined now by Sean Keyes, finance correspondent at The Current. Sean, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, let's start with that, uh, the the news this week uh, about uh, the company profits, the largest ever profit for its key summer season. Some might say that we just, they just capitalised on, on our desire to get off the island. But after COVID, to be ready for the numbers that they facilitated, is quite something. How did they manage it? Yeah, the numbers are like on their face, look, looked at in isolation, they're strong. But if you look at them relative to other airlines, they're even stronger. Wow. And I think that the big difference between one of the one of the differences I should say between Ryanair and their competitors is they they do a bit less business travel. That's what, and business travel has been has been the real big loser out of the pandemic. It's it's the sort of the leg out of the, the their the airlines business model that has not really recovered. Ryanair doesn't rely on it. Ryanair does different types, has a different type of customer, and Ryanair has kind of has been able to sort of ride the, the the general rebound in consumer demand and and people who are like you said pent up demand, people who wanted to get off the island and go for a holiday. Mm. And just the, the numbers that they have uh, facilitated of the course of the summer, they weren't really affected, were they by or were they affected by the operational difficulties, say in airports across Europe, even in Dublin here or in London? Yeah, they've, they they got ahead of that. Um, certainly, I mean, what we the operational problems in airports were sort of they're like a macro phenomenon. They, they happened everywhere. From, I mean, the, the stories came out of Dublin first, and I don't know about you, but I assumed it was sort of you know a, a story of Irish mis, Irish mismanagement and Dublin and a Dublin airport story. But then you see it in Amsterdam ship all, and you see it in New York, and you see it all over the world. So there was a sort of this global problem of like kind of supply chain issues mm. people not people being understaffed but Ryanair however it works I think it, it might be a factor of um, this is this is me speculating now but the other airports the, the, the big airports serve 
lots of big legacy airlines and they, so they will all, let's say the, let's say the Dutch one will have KLM and Air France and Lufthansa will all go through that airport Ryanair has tended for its own reasons because because it's cheaper to operate out of smaller airports in secondary locations so I'm just speculating that it might be that Ryanair was able to because it, it runs out of smaller simpler airports it was a less a, a less of a logistical challenge to um to get the flights running smoothly and on time but however they've done it anyway they, they definitely have been less affected by logistical problems than, than their competitors and that's largely you know what is within their own control let's just look at some of the factors beyond their control things like inflation um how much of an impact has had that had on Ryanair's business model or is it likely to affect them in the future like one of the big things one of the big factors of any airline is fuel costs mm. and they can they can hedge against them to an extent but those hedges only extend out for certain you know they they might be able to to hedge for a year out in future but if fuel costs stay elevated that's going to be a problem for for Ryanair um and that's that's that that more than anything else not the sort of general consumer price inflation that we the rest of us worry about or that other industries worry about um and it, you know if if oil prices stay elevated for the next 12 months and going into the future Ryanair's hedges will Ryanair will be protected by hedges and that could be you know that that's a hit to its to its business model mm. now they do say that profit and traffic are poised for even stronger growth in the future as you say there's lots of hedging in relation to their energy costs and in this business in general they do tend to look forward on fuel but they also look and hedge on currency. Um, what 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 have they been saying about that? Well, I mean, Ryanair is a, com- is a company that earns predominantly in euro, um, so it's 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 a kind of a it's a European it's a European focused con- company. Obviously, mm. um, it's it it might operate to like you know I don't know how many markets it operates in terms of nations how many market markets it operates to, but I'm sure it's in the twenties twenty or thirty different markets. But the vast majority of them are in euro, so it's relatively well protected because most of those countries operate in the same currency. Um, where it has, where it can, be, where there can be trouble is if it's co- where its costs are denominated in dollars, mm. um, and that's and that's that's again talking about you're looking at oil. Um, so that's that's again would be the risk to it. Uh, oil costs denominated in, do- in dollars. If the euro depreciates against the dollar, then it's earning in euros. Dollar is staying strong. Oil costs are, are denominated in that way. So again, it, it'll feed back into their costs. Now, just to take a, a wider look at the company itself, they're, they're 35 years old this year. They really have changed uh, the nature of uh, aviation in Europe, but they've also made a huge contribution to the Irish economy, bringing more tourists, a little bit more business travel, as you say, they're less so, but even sports travel. How important do you think their contribution to the Irish economy has been? Oh, it's, it's massive. I mean, there are they, there are second or second or third. I would say third biggest company behind CRH and Flutter. Um, they are they are kind of a, a flag bearer, and it's not just. I guess it's not just what their value in in themselves, which is mm. significant. It's they're kind of at the, they're at the, the the cornerstone of a big. A big, a broader industry we have in Ireland. Our, like aviation is definitely one of Ireland's strengths. Um, it has been for for decades now. The, the the leasing industry originated here. 
the low cost industry. Ryanair didn't originate the low cost model, but it it, it made it made it its own in in Europe. And I think it's it's the, the, the between the spin off industries around leasing, um, all the other things that that go into it, um, maintenance, everything else. It's 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 it could be more important to to well, obviously that's overstating it, but it's it's. It's it's exactly what our, we as a company, a tribute, country, should be aspiring to to do. Mm, quite ex- extraordinary the numbers of people who travel here, literally for for tourism as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Sean Keyes, finance correspondent at the Currency. Now, Sean, just you can't have a discussion about Ryanair without discussing Michael O'Leary. He's been quite a divisive figure over the years. Um, maybe though he developed the cult of the CEO before. Silicon Valley. How important has he been to their success? Well, I mean, Ryanair has, has gotten to where it's gotten through sort of its its strategy. You know, like mm. it, they've they've done specific things to be successful, um, and that's like things like I, I mentioned their their strategy of flying into secondary airports. But it's the whole ethos from the from the very very get go. They they bet very heavily on a low cost model and they kind of work backwards from that and that was like their guiding principle and everything around the company how the company's organized feeds into that like high volume low cost model and like that has been just phenomenally successful because the legacy airlines in Europe just were ne- they were never they were never really focused on their customers very closely mm. you know they they were they're all unionized they were kind of previously the, the airline industry was quite heavily regulated so they kind of they knew they were quite sure that they were going to have demand for their products and they would maybe instead of they wouldn't com- compete on price because their price was regulated so anyway basically the, the industry in europe was was ripe for a company like Ryanair to come in there and another consequence of all that is that europe has got all like these I don't know how many exactly how many, but it's got a very fragmented market uh, airline market. There are mm. lots and lots and lots of smaller airlines. Even still, there has been a lot of consolidation, but there still are loads and loads of them, and that just doesn't really make any sense given the economics of the airline industry. It makes sense to have scale so that you can, for example, you know, negotiate with Boeing and Airbus and trade them off against each other, or you can get a good deal on your on your fuel or whatever it might be. So, yeah, like it, aviation in Europe was needed a company like Ryanair to come together to consolidate to basically um set the set the tone for the rest of the industry to follow and you have to give O'Leary credit for it I mean I mean I always think with these CEOs you know they they've, they've got like as as a as a person it's very difficult to not not to just look at someone's personal characteristics and whether you mm. kind of would like to sit beside them at a restaurant but like you know someone like like O'Leary or maybe even Elon Musk like whatever about them as as people, like you can't, like their contribution to society is just is enormous, and I think like what Ryanair has contributed to. Ireland and to Europe is just can't be underestimated. Mm. As you say, customer service uh, has always been, I think, um, at the end of the priorities for for the company, and they suffered from that to some extent in the media, but it doesn't affect their numbers because at the end of the day, people go with the low fares and, and that's that's the model that they operate. Now, um, you mentioned their aviation across Europe. Brian has also predicted that it would eventually become Europe's only major low-cost carrier. What about the rivals like EasyJet and Wiz? Are they likely to look at them as takeover targets in, in the coming years? Well, 
I think EasyJets seems to be sort of a spent force. It it was trying to compete with Ryanair on its home turf. Mm. I think it was based out of Gatwick and Ryanair was based mainly out of Stansted. Um, and they went head to head and I think Ryanair has come off the better there. Um, Wiz, it seems, is a more serious competitor. Uh, they the, this, the CEO there has sort of been inspired by Ryanair and, and Southwest before them in the States and has really sort of like just uh, taken that template and, mm. and run it very, very successfully in Eastern Europe. Um, so yeah, that's a, they're, they are genuine competitors for Ryanair and, and like Wiz has sort of has seemed to have gotten past the point where, you know, it, it, Ryanair could squash them. You know, they're, mm. they're big now. They have scale and it's going to be difficult for Ryanair now to go to the, like to Wiz's strongest home markets in, in the, in Eastern Europe. But, um, so that's, I mean, that's, they're a real competitor, but they're nowhere near the size of Ryanair yet. And as for the, the others, as for your IAGs and that it's, it's just, it's just very difficult to reconstitute your business around around a new sort of business model, and, and the low fares model is a totally different model for them. Like they would have, it's it, unions are a huge blockage for it. Like they would have to go to war with their staff. Mm. Um, in a way, it's, it's almost. It's, in fact, there's, there's, I've read before that there's almost cycles in the airline industry where, like, it's, it's it, unionization apparently is a really key point, turning point for in the industry, and if when um when a when an, an airline an airline gets started it grows market share but so eventually at some point it gets big enough and staff get organized and they get unionized and from that point on it's very difficult to maintain that sort of low cost high growth model and then the cycle continues i suppose so for ryanair for ryanair the key is definitely for their from their perspective from the shareholders perspective it's not to be unionized mm. um from the incumbents airlines which like the likes of aig and, and lufthansa which are heavily unionized just like there's not really it's very difficult for them to compete basically yeah it's not part of their strategy certainly been adverse to it uh, on every level pilots uh, and cabin crew alike and, and ground crew and um, one thing that always sort of baffles me about them sean is like they said this week that they have 95 percent plus capacity and that they plan to grow more we've talked many times about the obligations on companies in relation to esg targets where do they sit uh, on environmentalism and when they're asked that question um, what's their response? Um, Ryanair's ESG, I mean, it's, something, it's certainly not something that uh, not, that they they emphasize, is it? If you go to uh, a Ryanair, Ryanair end of year report, um, it's not going to be front and center because like, in, inherently, you know, flying people on holidays using jet fuel is it's 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 difficult to to do that. Now, I mean, like they pro- they're promising. They say that they were promised to go to, net, to reach net zero emissions by twenty fifty, mm. which is quite a long way away. Um, I don't know how they're going to exactly do that. They they say they they invest in greener aircraft, and which is which is absolutely true. Actually, I think you know Ryanair is one of the things is they have they like they as part of their model they have a very um, up-to-date fleet of the most modern aircraft. And I think that means that for them, like it makes sense for them for this, the reasons we've been talking about because of the cost efficiency, because of like, you don't want to be burning jet fuel, which is so expensive. Um, so yeah, so like they, they are a company that has always invests very heavily in new aircraft. 
so therefore they're a company that will tend to have the the most efficient aircraft and the, so you're, you're you're probably looking at less you know grams of carbon per mile flown with Ryanair than, than the average European airline but like you know at the end of the day you're still flying people around in the sky so it's sort of it's, it's not a it's not a kind of a comfortable conversation for them to be having I would say no and also they might not emphasize their um, environmental credentials but we also as consumers, going by these figures don't seem to mind that because uh, the proof is in the pudding when their sales are at the levels that they're at. A fascinating insight into Ryanair, Sean, and also your take on the aviation industry across Europe. For now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Sean Keyes of The Currency. Sean, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast for us from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do so by email at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and all your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.